Welcome to another episode of Whiteness in America. My name is Tom Bell. This is episode number four, affectionately being called Wrecking Ball of Cotton. You'll find that out later as we get through uh, and talk through our panelists today. We have three amazing, amazingly talented and brilliant panelists joining me for the conversation today. Uh, Josie Carmona, Lindsay Wagner, and Joshua Trinidad. You'll remember Josh actually was our inaugural uh, guest on Whiteness in America. He's coming back for a panel discussion. Today's discussion primarily focuses around the concept of neutrality or being neutral in, in teaching and education. Um, education is a field that is a system, as a system has been built upon whiteness and, and it's ingrained in the fabric of all that, that, that is part of that system. So the conversation really is, is the, this push of being neutral as an educator, meaning not really having the ability to show bias or not showing that bias, does it really potentially perpetuate whiteness? Knowing that the field of education, 80% of the teachers in the United States of America and PK-12 are white in higher education. Most of the PhDs go to white folks. Most of the people working at universities are white folks. Most of the people running institutions are white folks. Most of the people making policies and laws are white folks. And it's all done under this concept of normalizing whiteness. And so when you are neutral, at least this is the thought, when you are neutral in, in that and you're, you're creating exploration opportunities for your students, even in the sense of neutrality, does that mean we're perpetuating whiteness? It's a really fascinating discussion that we had, and I'm really thankful and, and was humbled to have um, our, our participants today. So I won't uh, belabor any more points. We'll get right into the discussion. And here we go with the episode number four. Uh, let's meet our panelists. Well, I'd like to welcome the three of you to the podcast. Uh, well, let's introduce our panel for today. Uh, first, Lindsay Wagner. Lindsay, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Lindsay Wagner. Um, I'm a higher education facilities management consultant. I've been working at the University of Chicago for the past two and a half years. Um, I'm white, queer, androgynous. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show and agreeing to do this. Are you excited? I am so excited. You happen to be one of the smartest people I know, so I'm really excited that you were uh, decided to do this today. No offense to Josh or Joe, who are like the third and fourth smartest people I know. So, <laughs> um, uh, Josie Carmona is also joining us. Josie, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I am a Chicana feminist. I've been in higher ed for over 20 years, most of that in a four-year institution. Recently switched over to community college. Um. I also teach, I've adjuncted since probably 2013, political science, Chicano studies, military history, international relations courses with a variety of students, military, traditional 18 and 25 year olds and adults. And um, glad you invited me. And I'm in the company of Lindsay, definitely the smartest person in the room. Yeah. Wait, you're the smartest person in the room or Lindsay is? Oh, Lindsay is. I get confused when I'm around you all. You all, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for joining us. I know this is your first time and um, I appreciate your willingness to be on this. Now you just moved, right? You got, you're in a new new place, both physically in a location and a, a new institution. Yep. So I just left a 20-year career at a four-year institution and moved to a community college. That's pretty exciting. 
four months, three months. I look like hell today. You look, you look happy. I'm which very is good. happy. Yes. Which is good. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah. And, and last, uh, but certainly not least, our very first guest on the podcast, uh, Joshua Trinidad. Um, Josh is joining us back. He's coming back and making a repeat appearance. So Lindsay and Josie, I hope that both of you enjoy your time and want to come back. Uh, Josh, you want to take a minute and reintroduce yourselves to slackers that have not had a chance to listen to the podcast yet? Sure. Um, Joshua Trinidad, I am an assistant principal at an alternative high school here in Denver. Um, I've also um, been an adjunct professor for the last uh, about six or seven years. Um, been in both K-12 and higher ed, um, both as a, in a leadership positions and a consultant, so kind of a wide span of things. Just trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And you're also a budding musician. Well, you're not budding. I mean, you've been a musician for quite a time. <laughs> no, I'm still budding. Oh, I guess. I guess. Last time you were on, you talked about your, your uh, latest record, and you're still touring to support that, and you're also touring to support your other acts. Is that right? Yeah. I'm working on a couple of other things now. Um, started learning uh, upright bass, actually, too. So. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah. And Josh, I've been meaning to tell you that uh, um, in my last apartment, it was a three flat, and uh, we went upstairs for a little gathering one night, and there were there was a couple of people there that had suddenly like found jazz and um, had been going to all these jazz bars, and I was like, "Well, I'm gonna go get a record for you because they were playing records," and I went and got your record. And I took it up there, and they never brought it back. So I think that's a good thing. Oh, dang! I'll have to send you. I'll have to send you one. <laughs> I have a lot. <laughs> Um, well, for the listeners, uh, this is uh, uh, first, um, the three, well, the four of us, uh, so I'll count myself, we're all in the same cohort for our higher education leadership program, uh, are all trying to earn our PhDs and become doctors, um, but hopefully not the medical kind. Uh, so we know each other relatively well um, and have a little a group that we kind of have brought together um, because of our interest in uh, research and kind of ideology and framework. So. Um, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you all today. So before we get started on our main topic, which is talking about the positionality of teaching and educating, um, and I frame it that way because I think that, that that is a more broad way to kind of talk about it, I want to talk a little bit about the president. I can't seem to get away from him every time I bring up a topic on this. I want to talk about something else, something that comes out of his mouth um, in a way that I think continues to, in my opinion, to solidify and be a great point of examples of either whiteness in practice or whiteness in ideology. And on Friday at the Naval Academy commencement address, um, and maybe Josie will have you comment on this first because of your background in teaching military stuff. Um, he said that our ancestors tamed a continent um, and then said, we are not going to apologize for America. Um, and I just think that's really fascinating to me. Um, first of all, the word our, which discludes a lot of different populations that were a part of that and only really focuses on certain populations. And then the other part is we're not going to apologize with the sense of we don't need to apologize for basically creating caste system, slavery, racism in this country and, and genocide, which is really what he was talking about. So, Josie, do you want to start with the conversation? Sure. So, Sorry to pick on you, but... 
okay. I hadn't, so just a disclaimer, I have been avoiding social media. Um, I read the news a little bit, but I try and avoid any Trump ridiculousness as much as possible. And I hadn't seen that until you sent it. Um, it's not surprising. Um, you, you know, what I'm curious about is how did the soldiers react? Because when I taught military history, it was mainly to a soldier population, um, mainly army. And so I always walked a fine line um, in presenting political topics. Um, but I would present topics on like the Wilson plan, the manifest destiny. And um, surprisingly, a lot of the soldiers, um, they didn't agree. They, they, you know, a lot of people have this like stereotype that, you know, everyone um, believes in the mission. And I found that most of my students didn't necessarily agree, but they had been trained in such a way that they were following orders. Um, they also talked about ways that they kind of resisted in their roles. Um, and generally, to be quite honest, those were my students of color. Um, and, and so I think that the military at one time really pushed that agenda. I'm not sure it's still there. I think that there's enough, um, I guess, soldiers of color who have tried to make change and who recognize that the military has a lot of issues and they challenge those things. And when they become leaders in higher positions, they actually are more thoughtful in the way that um, they approach war because none of them believe in it. None of them think that it's the first option. So many of them really recognize that um, diplomacy is more important. But it was also cool when I would teach my international relations course and we started, um, you know, analyzing every war and looking at it. And so much of it, they were able to make connections to say, you know, we're doing the same thing now in Iraq, right? So the stuff that we did when we had, um, you know, World War II, every war has a very similar theme when you start breaking it down. So it's not surprising. I hate to say it in that way. I'm trying hard not to let that man continue to suck the life out of me. Because um, I'm really disappointed in just lots of people because I think he's their mouthpiece. And um, so clearly nobody challenges him on it. Um, and he just says whatever he wants. And it's not going to change. So I never am surprised anymore. Um, but I continue to be hurt by people's lack of reaction and or action in general against the things that he does. Yeah, that makes sense. I appreciate so, that, that, that viewpoint. That's, you know, Josh or Lindsay, do you have any thoughts on, on that? No, my, when I heard that, that comment, my initial thought was, holy shit. Like, what would it feel like to be in the audience uh, hear the commander in chief essentially as a military refers to him and say that. And essentially like, I mean, there has to be at least a third of the audience that, that does not resonate with at all that directly goes against. And how does it feel to have just dedicated a certain number of years of your life to defending a country uh, and then basically 
hear your commencement speech in which you are identified as invisible. <laughs> like that, that was my thought. And then, and then I, you know, quickly transitioned into like management philosophy and like, all right, so you are the commander in chief of this group of individuals and you just excluded a certain number of them. You know, how is that good management philosophy? <laughs> um, and so that's kind of, I was all over the board, but I, mean, I just, I, I can't even fathom what that felt like. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to take it to management philosophy too and thinking about it from that context. I didn't even think about it from that lens, but I think that's an interesting way to approach it. I have two brothers that are in the military and, and um, to hear them refer to the president in an entirely different context than, um, than we do as civilians is interesting. Like they really don't have any, I mean, they have their own opinions, but when they speak about it, they speak about it like we would speak uh, about our bosses um, in public, you know? Right. And so it's very controlled and um, really difficult actually for me to have conversations with them because they, they will never like openly speak about how they actually feel. Hmm. Lindsay, that's interesting that you brought that up because I got some texts today because I guess they question the president on why he does he hasn't gone to visit the troops. And he said, you know, that he's too busy. And so, and these are from like colleagues of mine who served in the military for over 30 years. And one of them pointed something out. He was like, it's actually a good thing he hasn't gone because the words that he does put out are super damaging to soldiers morale. And so he, you know, we were kind of joking back and forth, but he, he said, no, seriously, like, it's really good that he's not speaking to them because he does nothing but alienate so many people when he talks. And um, they don't need that, especially when they're like in theater and or stressful situations. Um, and I hadn't thought about it that way. And I said, well, I guess you're right. Like, it's a good thing he's not doing his job. In yeah. that I think when I first... Um you know, heard heard the speech that I think the word that sticks out the most is tame. Mm. And um, just thinking about like the dichotomy he always creates of like superiority and those that are inferior and how this is just like a constant like um, component to his rhetoric since the day he's ran for office. And, you know, I, and I think about it from like a teaching point of view about you know, teachers that I've coached or teachers that I've worked with in the past or professors that I've had that do it, do the same thing in their own way. Um, but aren't, you know, a little maybe less abrasive, but, um, for me, I, I guess I always look at, at it from like a, a teaching and learning standing point. And so what I saw automatically was this division of, of greater than and less than, um, and, and he does it in a way because, or he does it, I think just it's a, you know, for his own sake of safety um, within like his own thoughts and his own um, self-confidence. And so I, you know, he still talks about his own election. So, you know, the fact that he used the word tame, just like, that's where my mind keeps going to is the division he tries to create. Yeah, and not to get all nerdy and researchy on this, but I just started kind of, I shared with all of you before we started, I just started kind of coding and looking at my data for my dissertation. And one of the things that comes up in the type of method that I'm using is this concept of repetitive refrains. So when people use a terminology that's over and over, and politicians do it all the time, right? It casts a light and understanding so people can connect to it. 
And that's exactly what we're saying, Josh. He has created repetitive refrains of certain characteristics of what it means to be an American, what it means to be dominant, what it means to be tough, what it means to be masculine, et cetera. And, and, and these are things that are um, challenging, I think, the core of some of our, some of the things I think, at least I've been talking with the three of you, the things that we value. Um, and I, I think, you know, he's, instead of really constructing um, something that, you know, even, even the previous president, President Obama was guilty of, I think, perpetuating whiteness and aspects of policy. Um, he was able to, I think, in some regard, talk about the diversity and respect of our country as a holistic group of people that are from all over the place, all different walks of life and, and, and that, that process. And, and, and with what our current president is saying, it feels like the only ones in the room that matter are the ones that look like him. Um, which are white men, right? So I think that that's been, that's the thing I think is those, those repetitive refrains are bringing up for me. Um, and I just wanted to bring this up because I think it's an interesting thing. And for, like I said, you know, Josie, I agree with you. I, I don't want to waste my time and energy on him, but it's really hard as <laughs> to not do that. And I feel like it's partly as a white man, my responsibility to continue to push this because if I go back on it, then I, I think that that's, that's me not doing my work. Yeah, I totally agree. I get my, my updates from my partner, so it's funny um, because I just can't do it. I think it broke my soul the last year. So I had to take a step away from it. But you brought up an interesting point. I mean, he's done like an incredible job of repeating and creating. He stays on message. He's branded himself in such a way that he has this appeal that I at first didn't understand, but he speaks to, you know, this white supremacy and so many people, you know, have that ingrained in them. And so they appreciate it. And it's like, Oh, yay. Now we got someone who's saying it and he's the president of the United States. So it validates who I am and what I'm saying. And it gives me a license to, to do whatever I want. It's kind of like, you know, all of these, you know, we joke a little bit about it, but there's all these white women who are calling the cops in all of these variety of situations on black men or even little black boys, like the young man who, he was like nine years old and the woman accused him of touching her butt. And I was just like, that's exactly what happened during Jim Crow. You know, a black man could not even look at a woman and he'd be lynched. But we can't see the, like, the horrific damage that this is doing. Um, but he's given people that license. It's always existed. Mm -hmm. He's just opened the door and through this repetitive, you know, I, I don't want to call it, well, because it, it, I don't think it's an act. It's just his show that he puts mm -hmm. on. And it's the same stuff over and over. And nobody says anything. So he was right when he said, I can shoot someone in the middle of the street and I'm still going to win. Yeah. Right. It's going to happen to me. I can call, um, suit Elizabeth Warren, you know, Pocahontas. I can say stormy Daniels is, um, horse face. Like it's just, and nobody says anything. So sorry. It's really interesting because, um, I teach for a higher ed facilities management organization that is, um, just the industry in general, but the organization is predominantly white males between the ages of 45 and 70, in some cases, maybe older than that. 
but that's just the, the you know, uh, demographic of the industry. And, you know, during the Obama presidency, I felt like the organization started to transition um, a little bit in a, a, a positive direction. Um, and it is very, very evident that the, the men in that organization feel empowered by um, Trump. Um, things have, have millions of steps backwards, in my opinion. Just um, it, It's really fascinating to watch. There, there's all of a sudden, exactly what we were just saying, this, this uh, sort of belief that I can do this. Nothing's going to happen to me. Uh, it's really sad. Yeah. And, and also the, the refrain of why can't you just get over it? Yep. Right. Um, which is an interesting part of this too, um, which seems to have come out in the, um, not to go back to the last, last topic that I talked about in the last show, but the Kavanaugh stuff. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with our panelists in just a moment. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying today's episode of Whiteness in America. Uh, The Whiteness in America podcast is a podcast that comes to you um, just through the labor of um, me and our participants, guests, and some other folks. And so if you're interested in sponsoring or supporting this podcast, please share it with your friends. Please share it with uh, colleagues or talk about it or bring us up in social media as, as we start to get more traction and things start to build, um, the more the conversation can continue to happen. Um, normally, when you listen to a podcast, you would hear an advertiser or someone that is supporting uh, financially the podcast. This podcast does not have any of that. So in lieu of that, I, I like to bring up opportunities to support organizations or um, places where you can go to kind of do some work um, or, th- or or get more information about things that are going on. And right now, as I brought up last time, I work in, in Flint, Michigan, and Flint still does not have clean water. Uh, it's the community still is, is dealing with the water crisis. Uh, I want to bring to attention, there's an organization or a website called Flint, FlintCares.com. Again, that's FlintCares.com. If you're interested in trying to provide some support or assistance to Flint, um, uh, or understand the resources or areas of which we can um, get some additional help for uh, the folks that live in Flint, Michigan, uh, flintcares.com. Also, you can check out the City of Flint's info page, and they can direct you to places where to donate or to provide resources such as bottled water, filters, etc. Um, thank you very much, and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Um, transitioning a little bit, I want to, so today we were going to talk about the positionality of educators, um, and the teaching concept and, and, and what kind of resonated for me about this and, and my, my thoughts on this are, and I wonder, and, and, and the main question is, do you all feel like, and, and then we can kind of break this down a little bit, that neutrality in teaching is part of what upholds whiteness in education? Um, and I know that as educators, so I was looking through before we started for a couple studies that were done, you know, 41% of respondents uh, to an, I think it was an education weekly study, um, just, uh, teachers in PK-12 described themselves as Democrats by 30% that they were independents and only 27 Republicans, 27% Republicans. 
Um, but most teachers in PK-12, and I think in higher ed too, there's a sense of neutrality, wanting to be neutral. Um, and I sent you all a comment that was made by uh, one of the participants in my study who basically was like, you know, um, I'm not going to push my political views on a person. It's not my job to do that. I think um, we can we can affirm perspectives and viewpoints, but it's not my job as a teacher to push that. My job was to provide information. And part of this concept con conversation is when did race become political or politicized? Because racism is not necessarily that has anything to, in my mind, anything to do with being liberal or conservative or Republican or Democrat when we talk about political views. So I guess I'm not really sure where to start on this, but I just, I want to know if from all of your perspectives as educators, you know, you all educate in, all, in a way, whether it's teaching in PK-12 or as an administrator of a school or as a consultant, um, what do you think the value is of neutrality in teaching? Is it possible to be neutral? So I'm going to jump in here, Tom, because I've been giving it a lot of thought, mainly because when I worked on a military base, I worked really hard to remain neutral in the classroom. Um, but it was hard because there were, I, it was interesting because my, the class topics generally were like military history, um, international relations, the history of Mex US Mexico border, some capstone classes. And so I'd get a mix, but I would get a lot, quite a few like students of color, but mostly white males. And I'm going to share this story with you just to demonstrate kind of like, this was in 2015 in my second semester, or actually third semester of the program. It was a capstone class, but the topics are really political, you know, driving um, discussion, critical thinking. Um, and I can't even remember now what the topic was, but we got into a political discussion and it was about economics. Oh, that's what it was, welfare. We were talking about welfare. And I had a student stand up, white male, stand up and yell at me and tell me that my job was not to give them my opinion or to preach or lecture them, but my job was to provide them with the assignments, grade those assignments so that they could move on and get their degree. And it was like a shocking kind of experience because I just stood there and all I kept repeating to myself was, maintain your cool. So as a woman, I was like, you can't cry, even though I felt so angry that I wanted to cry. It wasn't crying because I hurt. It was crying because I was angry and I really wanted to like curse this guy out and kick him out of my class. Um, then the second thing was like, you don't want to be the angry Chicana either if you respond angrily. And so... I was able to maintain my cool. I ended, I ended class. I called him out and I said, I'd like for you to sit down. I apologized to the class on his behalf and said, anyone who doesn't understand what the role, my role is as a faculty member and facilitating knowledge and challenging you all and helping you reach that next step. If you are uncomfortable in this class, you're more than welcome to leave. Um, and I had passed out a CD with a bunch of readings and assignments and, um, he walked up and like threw the CD back at me and left. And it still bothers me that I didn't handle it differently, that I didn't just tell him to get up and leave and carry on with my class. That was when I realized that as much as I thought about holding my own, like even me being very conscious of like not imposing, because I always propose both sides. I always bring like alternative readings. I feel like it is my responsibility to 
expose my students to things that they didn't get in K through 12. And most of the time, I would say like 98% of the time, they are like appreciative and they say, you know what, I never knew about this. I had no idea. Um, in my La Chicana course, it's a completely different story. Like who I, that's central to my identity. And so I show a lot of vulnerability with my students and I engage them in ways where I open the door for them to also share their stories and I validate that they have a story to tell. And so, you know, I've had, interestingly enough, I've had several white students drop my class. Um, but I've also had several white students who are like, I never knew this. Um, and so I think it depends on the topic. And, um, and when I taught like government, I never, I always kept it pretty, not neutral, because I don't think you can in a political science government class, you have to really talk about the political parties. But I did a really, like I focused and made sure that it was never too liberal, because I didn't want any student to ever accuse me of being biased, um, or even administrators to say, hey, you're not, you're not really providing the students with a balanced view. So that's my, those are my initial thoughts. Well, I, thank you for sharing that story, Josie. That must, and I, and I think your opinion is interesting on the, it depends on what you teach or what you're teaching. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, maybe it's just me. I have a real hard time removing my own lens from stuff. Um, and I almost believe it's impossible to be neutral because I think you're going to tip your hand in one way or the other anyway. But I don't know. Yeah, I think that's what a really What does good... it mean? I have a question about this, neutral. Yeah. What, what does that mean? What do you think it means? Like expressing no opinion at all. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the concept. So part of this came up in a discussion with our faculty where um, some of the students were giving feedback that they didn't think that professors on the campus that I work at should be providing their political perspective or their perspective on political issues. Um, you know, and as I'll just talk from a social studies perspective, you know, um, and I spoke with this about one of our social studies educators, I think that's really hard to do, not do. It's, it's hard to not, um, I think, you know, I think there's two different ways you can do this. You can look at in my, and I don't mean to be binary about it, but you can look at it from like a very strict, um, not to put it back in research focus, like, but I'm going to be non-biased. I'm going to remove myself from the content and just deliver and provide educational learning opportunities and, and these experiences and not have that a part of it. Or the other end, end is, you know your bias, you name it, you talk about it, you share that perspective as the way that you frame what you're learning, but you're open to being challenged on it. I, I think that the, those are the two kind of ways that I see this. I don't know. Yeah. I think when I teach, I play this, this sort of game. Um, again, uh, I'm teaching um, generally a classroom of 40 individuals in which I may have one person of color and one female, and the rest are going to be white males in between the ages of 45 and 70. Um, and then there's me standing in front of them, you know, androgynous, queer, whatever, whatever they see, you know, so they're confused the moment they walk in the door. But I play this sort of game where I provide the material on, on both extremes and kind of just slowly manipulate the situation until they start to open up with their own opinions. 
And then when that starts to happen, when they start actually sharing and there's an environment where there's enough comfort for that to happen, then when it's like collective, collective vulnerability, then I become no longer neutral and at times will then reveal um, my experiences or, um, you know, talk about um, my gender identity or my sexuality or uh, how that has infect affected my um, uh, sort of experience in higher ed facilities management. And, uh, but I think that like the neutrality is important until that vulnerability is created uh, mm. or at least with the audience that I have. Um, I think that if I came in and, and was immediately expressing um, my own opinion, I would, I would shut them down. And so it's kind of this ballet that has to occur. Yeah. I, go ahead, Josie. So Lindsay, I'm totally with you on that. But I want to point something out to Tom, like in a perfect world, Lindsay and I and Josh would not have to walk a fine line or worry about shutting a group down. Mm -hmm. um, would be able to say and do exactly what you're saying. But the truth is, is like you going in a classroom and saying all of that is going to be received very differently than me, Josh and Lindsay going into a classroom. And we have to be cognizant of it because like, it's really easy to dismiss us based on our race, our ethnicity, our gender, and um, our sexuality, and people shut down. And our goal really is to try and provide them with an example or an opportunity to see things differently and expose them to things that they've never been exposed to potentially. Um, and then get them to, like, just question. So I ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think ultimately I'd love to live in a world where, cause I think it's, it's important for students to know, like, this is why I'm passionate about it. I'm calling out racism. I'm feeling more comfortable calling out white supremacy now after going through our program, but you should see people like really get scared when you do that. Um, they like, they're like, Oh, that's just too radical. And, and in my world, it's like, no, it's not radical. It's real. But I'm dealing with lots of people who don't, don't see it that way. And I'd rather not shut down minds um, in the process. So. I got I to tell you guys a funny story um, about that. So at the end of these courses that I've been teaching, they have the opportunity to fill out this evaluation. And it's like, um, you know, they have a, some scaled questions and then they can write what they want and I got the greatest evaluation I think I've ever gotten recently it said and this is from my memory this is probably nearly word for word but it said I think I need some more diversity training because when I walked in the room and saw the instructor I thought oh shit here we go but by the end of this course it was one of the greatest courses I took <laughs> <laughs> hilarious <laughs> that's awesome and, and then, and that I, day, actually like I, at first i was like huh, should i be offended hell no this is amazing <laughs> well because you and i think you you brought up the right word and josie i think your your white dude that threw the cd at you with struggles with this i think the, the aspect of vulnerability is important in learning 
And until you're able to make yourself vulnerable as a learner, it's important to do that. You're not going to, you're going to still continue to, I think, um, only receive and understand the things that you already know to be truth, whatever truth is for you. And, you know, unless the topic in of itself is something that is so removed from ideology that you can become vulnerable and not knowing, but if you still don't admit you don't know or whatever, then you have a hard time learning that. I think that that vulnerability piece is important. I guess as an educator, you know, and you're right, Josie, I think that it's easier probably for me to go into a room and be like, this is what it is. This is where I'm at. This is who I am. It's important for you all to know this. Um, because I always kind of start out with a positionality disclaimer, but the things that I teach, it's, I think it's kind of important, but for me, it's, I want to, I want to expose my vulnerability early on because I want my students to, to see that because I want them to get there too. Um, and not do it in a threatening way, but do it in a way that's engaging about that. So they can maybe start engaging me on my stuff so that we can start engaging about theirs, but I, it's hard to get there. And I think in PK 12, it's even harder. Um, I don't know, Josh, if you, what do you think about your teachers um, sharing their political ideologies in classrooms or bringing up stuff that's um, politically charged? Yeah. Um, well, when I, when I came into this position as the assistant principal, um, we work with a lot of Teach, teach for America uh, teachers, and we know how much of a fan, you know, you are of that, Tom. And... Um, you know, they come in, yeah, they come in like, uh, like this pre-programmed kind of, uh, like computer. Right. And they're like, all right, just like, you know, tell me what to do and I'll flip to the page and I know what to do. And the first thing I told my teachers that came from that program, I said, I want you to forget everything you've learned and I don't want you to use any of any of that content to help guide your teaching anymore. And I gave them an out and I said, if, if this sounds challenging to you, then this isn't the school for you. And I said, I hired you all because I, I saw something more than um, Teach for America. I said, I, I brought you in because I saw potential. And they were like, cool with it. Nobody left the room. And I said, and I also want us to stop thinking about, because they have a, a book called Teach Like a Champion that goes mm-hmm. through the whole thing. And the more that I dug into like the, the, the text and everything, it's like there is such a push towards neutrality. And I thought to myself, like, well, of course, like neutrality is safe and neutrality is like, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a place to be to, for job security. It's a place to be as you learn, I guess. Um, maybe there's like a safety net to it, but I, I told all my teachers on the first day they started, I said, I want us to take risks moving forward. So, um, the, our principal had created kind of like a resource library outlining all the teach like a champion, teach for America like links and I deleted them all and I started putting in like CRT stuff and um, <laughs> and she was like what did you why did you do that and I was like because I do not want our teachers to know that stuff I, and I said watch I said just watch how, how much happier our, our kids will be and within like three or four weeks the kids were like man Miss Green she's she's fucking down I love her and I'm like yeah because she's being responsive you know she's not snapping at you guys and tapping your desk and asking you guys like to, to, to learn in a neutral way, but really like getting down with them in their stories and helping them like guide the learning process because ultimately that's what a teacher should be doing. They're guides. I mean, they're not, 
they're facilitating the learning process. The, the students are the ones that are really the ones that should charge the political conversations. And to more or less, like, the teachers are kind of like a mediator. Um, and so that's what I've asked a lot of my teachers to do is, like, you're mediating the learning process and that they are the ones truly with, like, the, the, the gifts. They're the ones that have the wealth. Um, you've already gone through this process. I just want you to make sure that they're going in the right direction. So that's something that I, I push my teachers to do. So uh, love that. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Josie. Oh, I totally love that, Josh, because you just highlight this point of, you know, first of all, the role of the teacher as a facilitator, not like the all-knowing expert is super important. But two, it centralizes the student and their story and experience as valuable. Um, and I think that that's so important. And so I learned from Susana's class when she had us blogging. So I've been using blogging a lot in my La Chicana course and it's been incredible. Like the vulnerability that my students have learned mm -hmm. show. and it's like their stories are beautiful. They're powerful. They're like, of course I know I'm a crybaby, but I am always moved by their stories because it's, and many of them have said, like, I've never really thought my story mattered, you know? And so it's, our role is, in, is to, like, encourage them to, to find their voice and, uh, well, not find it, they have it, to, like, elevate it and put it out there and feel confident that they matter. Um, and school should not be about somebody tapping on a desk and, like, you know, moving them from class to class. They're not criminals, you know? They're not in the prison system. So. Yeah, and the, and the crazy thing about it, it's like there's so many teachers being taught like this pedagogy. And it's, uh, you know, I guess I'm in a lucky situation where I get to call the shots and I'm going to tell it like how it's going to be. And, you know, and I, and I think it's actually been really good for both the teachers and, and the students that I work with because their stories are fucking awesome. And the teachers are just like learning so much. And I have teachers from like all over the U.S. that I have in my school. Like I have a teacher from Connecticut to a teacher used to teach in like California, like all different walks, and and they're all in different places. But you know what's what's central is that the students are kind of guiding the learning process, and that's what I've always said is like if your class is like seventy percent teacher talk time, then something's not right. Like teach, the students should be guiding the process. Um, and so when I go and observe teachers teach, like, that's what I want to see. I want to see like students, like holding each other accountable for learning, like having critical questions. And if that's not happening, then I'm going to look to the teacher to go like, this isn't engaging. Like, what are you doing? And sometimes, yeah, like it's not neutral and it shouldn't be neutral. It should be bouncing all over the place because these kids are, you know, 14 to 20 years old and you know, they, they don't even know what the fuck neutral is. So it's like, they're just telling their stories, but us as adults, I don't even think us as teachers know what's neutral. So right. I, I think it's kind of like the shared space, like where teaching and learning is like, that's why I think it's more of a facilitation than it is and in, in a guiding than us like actually like directing learning. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting thing to do because I think as a, as a teacher, you kind of have to be able to do that. My concern is this though, when you have 80% of your teaching workforce in the United States and PK 12 is white, and you have 90% of the faculty in higher education white. 
that concept of neutrality becomes problematic in my opinion because that's where you see these you know systems of hegemonic oppression whether it be masculine um you know or whiteness um or heterosexist you see these things being upheld and i think and they hide behind and i'll use the term hide behind this sense of neutrality so you know for the participants and it wasn't a huge study like i had seven it's a qualitative study seven people but many of the folks that struggle with challenging whiteness do so from the things that you all have kind of talked about they fear losing their jobs um, they were student teachers at the time, so they didn't know their place in the political dynamic. And But the most important thing was teaching is a neutral thing. Therefore, I can't really talk about racism because race is a political subject. So when Colin Kaepernick, when the Colin Kaepernick stuff was really big last year and the president was talking about it, they couldn't shape that conversation. Um, one of them was like, I just present facts. Like that's what, that's what I saw my role as, but I couldn't do it to an extent that I wanted to because if I push too much, my students would say that I was being liberally biased. And I just don't know where we've come from in a society where we think that anti-racism is liberal. I, I just don't, I don't, I guess I just don't understand that. Like being an anti-racist is, is, is a liberal thing. Like it is, I guess, but is it really need to be political? And I, I just don't, I don't know. I think um, I just want to, say something about what Josh was talking about and the role of the teacher as sort of this mediator, because I think we're saying kind of the same thing in, in the way that you kind of utilize the students to guide the, the conversation. And I think that that is the only way to teach, but the scary part about that is that conversation can be pushed in either direction. And so then it goes back to like, yeah, it, I listening to Josh say it um, freaks me out a little bit, actually, because you can have teachers that are like incredible at guiding and maneuvering that conversation and manipulating the situation, but manipulating it in a very bad direction. Yeah, that's true, and I've seen it kind of go that go that way, and I think that you know that's that's kind of the art form to teaching is like that's that's something that I think takes, takes a lot of time and awareness. Um, and also just kind of like secure with your own teaching, um, like just your understanding of teaching and learning. But yeah, I've seen it go that direction. I've been in the situation where I'm like, uh Oh, like we're kind of in a dark area here. Like how, how do I bring this like constructively back to a place where we all feel good? And, um, you know, but I like to challenge some spaces um, and places for people that, you know, like I've, ha I mean, but I've, I've been in classrooms where it's like 90% Latino and, um, you know, most of them, this is their fifth or sixth high school. And, you know, there's like that one white person in the room and they're talking about like, you know, how, you know, white society has ruined them. And I remember my principal came over to me. She's like, but there's a white person in here. I'm like, yeah, I know. And that's okay. And they didn't experience this. Like, this is real life. Like, we shouldn't censor it, but more or less, like, create a constructive, like, discourse with each other. And so, you know, I always, I always refer back, not to get too heady, but I always refer back to, like, Tara Yosa's work and in, uh, in, in her kind of critical understanding of, like, using students' wealth to engage with um, critical learning. And just thinking of their intersection with society, whether that be people of color or their socioeconomic status or gender identities, like 
Terrioso is like what I, I think helps like schools succeed in those conversations because the better that you could engage in like CRP and CRT teaching, then it's just, it, it, it's hard for it to actually go in that direction once like you're in that frame, but it's hard. I will say it, it is very, very difficult. Um, but there are some artists that are very good at it. I've seen it a, a few times. Susanna's one. Susanna's one, I think, is a master at it. I agree. Yeah. So, Tom, back to your question about race being political. I mean, I don't know if I agree with you because it clearly is political. I mean, it becomes- oh yeah, I, I agree with you, but I just don't understand why. Why we have we let it become political? Well, because there's something to gain from a political party yes. in doing that, right? Oh, sure. Power. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, and so, so that meme or whatever, it wasn't a meme. It was a tech tweet that I sent. Like when somebody says I'm not racist and they walk like two feet and they're like, yeah, you are racist. Right. So the reality is, is that because we, this post what do we call it? Post-color society? Post-racial society. Post-racial society. So, you know, I learned that term when we started the doctoral program. Um, And, and I laugh because it's like, of course, white people don't want to freaking talk about race. It's hard for them. So like the white kid in Josh's class, it's like, how dare we expose that white kid to feeling uncomfortable when we've been doing it for centuries to kids of color, right? And there's this real, like, fear on, amongst, I think, white people in general, that when people of color stand in front of the classroom or get positions of power, that we are going to do the exact same things to them that they did to us. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a real fear that I kind of understand. I don't agree with it. I think the potential for that to happen is there. But the question really revolves around this power structure and oppressing people and dominating and going back to Trump. It's like this, we tamed you. It's this control. You are an object. You are property. You know, we came into this country and we pulled you under control and you should be grateful for that. And it's all like a running thread through that ideology of control. That's what colonization is, capitalism. The more you control, the more you make. It's very common. Um, And so it's not surprising to me that they would throw out and say, oh, you're a liberal because you want to talk about race. Well, I think think that's part of it. And I guess that's my frustration is that politics is being shoved in front of the topic because then it's something you can't touch. Because then you have to, you like, like, there's a sense of neutrality. So I agree with you. Yes, it is political. Yes, it seems like the ideologies have are split on this a little bit. Um, but I think it's a front, is my opinion. And I, I guess you and I agree. It's just you were explaining it well more, way, way more. No, I just didn't understand. Better than I was. Yeah, no. Yeah. But think about how many liberals, and I put those in quotation marks. That Can I talk about race? <laughs> right? Right. Because, uh, and then let's talk about, like, you know, the gay population, the white gay population who doesn't want to talk about race either and how they perpetuate racism within their own culture. 
right? Or how do Latinos have major colorism and discrimination in their communities as well, right? But if you really stop and think about it, it is this horrible colonial white supremacist like ideology that has just like devoured every aspect of society. And so it's ingrained in every little thing that you do. And so people want to be liberal for little subjects, like little, you know, if they were, you know, they want to be PETA lovers, they want to, you know, volunteer for the Sierra Club. It's okay to be liberal there, but it's definitely not okay to be race conscious during that process. So I would argue that people who are race conscious and, and want to push CRT, you know, perspectives, who want to talk about like, like radical feminism in real ways, you know, to make change, the term radical is probably more appropriate for them than the term liberal, I would think. But I, I you know, I don't have my PhD yet, so, you know. That's an unsubstantiated claim. Exactly. <laughs> but if you ever hear that shit somewhere down the road, you better remind everyone that I said it first. I agree. I agree, 100%. Probably already said it, and I'm just not properly attributing it to some badass scholar that already exists. We all, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. yeah. Other thoughts on this particular topic? Any last comments or closing things? Well, one, one of the things I was going to say is, you know, in, in teaching, I, I always try to think about what students um, grapple with in life. I mean, what is, what is the most challenging thing for you? And then we dig into it deeper of why is it a challenge? And what, what is the barriers that hold you from succeeding, whatever that may be? Or what is, it, what is your goal? And as we start to break down, like, what is standing in our way, it's hard to remain neutral because we start to see that it is systematic, it is institutional. And we begin to start to realize like, oh, it's, it's this system. That's why I'm having the trouble. Or it's, it's because of this institution that I'm not able to penetrate through. And I, I, I guide my students to, to come through those realizations on their own, but I support them once they get there. Because being a person of color, it's hard for me not to because that's the part of my like, that's the part of gold that I get to share with them is like, maybe for some it's a socioeconomic interse intersection that I have with them. And I say, yes, like you have that, I have this, but we're both like trying to cross this plane together. Let me tell you what's worked for me and tell me what you would like to do that will work for you, whatever that may be. And so, you know, I use that as always a foundational piece and then we jump into content. So I always say, like, where do you want to get, like, where do you want to get to? And how, how are we going to get there? And what is your goal that you're trying to achieve? And as we start to, like, just deconstruct that, we start to realize that being neutral is not okay. Um, because that's, that's the major piece that's holding them to succeed. So that's kind of the closing thing that I want to, I want to add is I, always, I will always do that. And I don't care if I get fired for that because I get a job every other day. As we all know, this is, like, my eighth job. Or, in the last or a new house. <laughs> our new house but that's the fun part about life it's like 
all right, well, if you, you know, if an administration has a problem with that, then it's probably better I'm not there um, because my life will just be shit. And the students, what, what I want to leave them with is always like, whatever happened to Mr. Trinidad or, you know, cause that guy was like the one who, who helped me really figure shit out. You know, if, if I got to serve a year, cool. You want to fire me? Fine. Like, that's the cool thing about us getting our PhDs. Like you can shit on us, but we're going to go right around somewhere else and get another job because you can never take away our, our, our education. So I always use that as firepower. I wish, uh, Josh was my assistant principal in high school. I don't, I don't know if you want some good and bad to that. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have learned a lot more, uh, you know, in high school as opposed to learning at the PhD level. So it would be that. I do have some kids reading some like Derek Bell <laughs> that are like 15. So it's a real thing. Freaking awesome, Josh. I love you for that. That's great. So let me just throw something in there about like – in my reading on this construct of academic legitimacy and how people of color struggle with this, right? Um, being legitimate within higher ed. So I read up on, and I'm not even going to quote the authors because at this point I'm tired, but this idea that when we talk about white supremacy in, in higher education and we talk about systems, the human aspect and human nature is to personalize it. And so nobody wants to be called a racist. And so um, what happens is, so it made me think a lot about, so how do you teach systems? Like how do you, you know, Josh, you mentioned it, you talk about this, like it's the system. Um, and that's like not easy to do, especially with like K through 12, right? Your high school students. I mean, I've done it a little bit with my college students and I see in the room probably 20% really get it, right? But and some of the, I think it was Strauss, not Strauss. I don't know. I better not even say it because I'll screw it up. But they really said, like, even white faculty in higher education who think that they're really liberal and they, they, they personalize it. When you talk about the system is, you know, racist, the system is oppressive, it's these hegemonic structures, and, um, and it's just kind of human nature to, like, go to the me. You're accusing me of being responsible for all of this pain in your world. And it doesn't matter how off, how much you tell them no, we just want you to acknowledge that the system exists and work towards changing it. That's a really hard thing to do. It's, yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's a very hard thing to do. Um, I've been experimenting a little bit recently with um, this attempt to transition from the use of the word diversity to the use of the word inclusivity, which with facilities managers, which I know is like behind the times we should be transitioning even further than that um, into social justice, but uh, you know, I'll take baby steps. And, and so to introduce this idea of inclusivity and what that means on a university campus and how a facilities manager plays a role in that and that there, there is this uh, system behind it all. Um, I'll break it down, you know, to this conversation of, 
what, what if this, what if that, you know, going through um, physical disability, you know, gender, sexuality, religion, all the things that all, all the students that are coming to campus are going to experience. And I, I just ask them to think about, you know, how, how would it feel to be this? How would it feel to be that? And I go through it very rapidly. So they don't really have the, the option to, to do anything but listen to what I'm saying. And then I ask them to go out into, I, we're generally teaching in a conference center hotel. So go out into the hotel, put on five pairs of shoes that aren't yours that we just, you know, rapidly went through. And you, tell me, tell me uh, if you felt immediately included in, in this space and it's been very interesting to see them come back and be able to relate to what they do on a daily basis and be like, oh man, like if that was me, then I, I don't know what I would do in this situation. And they had never thought outside of their own, you know, body and gender and sexuality before religion and in any of that. And, and so it's been very interesting way to like rapidly get them to recognize that wow, I play a role. There is a system in place that is not inclusive. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out how to address this concept without creating resistance immediately. And this is this kind of, I think, is getting somewhere. We'll see. That's awesome. I think that the, the, one of the things that I like to kind of I live by is this concept of you can't be neutral, right? So you can't be neutral on a moving train. Um, Howard Zinn wrote that because I think we're on a train and neutrality is upholding that. And I think it's that dance kind of what you were talking about, Lindsay, like having that conversation and, and getting folks to see things and humanizing someone else's lived experience. Like that's what we have. That's the challenge I think that's going on right now is the inability to humanize another's lived experience. And I guess, you know, to get, back to what Josie was saying too, like, and that's one area where I struggle as a facilitator on this because I, I think there is needs to be some ownership by folks in dominant lenses to own their, their role in upholding it. Even if they're not the person that's carrying the torch in Virginia, they're not doing anything. They're just as, I don't know, not just as bad, but that's a different level. And, you know, Robin D'Angelo talks about it in her latest book on fragility and it, no one wants to be labeled the bad race, like a bad, a bad person or, a, you know, the bad white person. And I think we have to stop looking at it from a binary perspective on race. Um, you're either a racist or you're not. Like if you're white and you're not, if you're white, you're upholding racism somehow. And, and that's just part of it. And so you're right. It's part of it. It's acknowledging it and then figuring out how do you then start to disrupt and deconstruct it? So that's my thoughts. I, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was going to pull a Carmen in, you know, because you probably should just throw in Carmen into this and say, Carmen spoke, you know, because Jean would always get us mistaken. So you could probably add Carmen's name to this podcast. Anyway, you know, Carmen always says totes, right? Like, right. So I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, but you got to start with baby steps, like Lindsay you're said. Right. You're like, right. people up with disrupting, deconstructing. Now, as academics, I think clearly we have a responsibility to write in that voice yep. and to pursue those methodologies and to really challenge the structures. But in our teaching, I think we have to take a different approach where um, we do the things that like Lindsay and Josh have talked about and some of the things that I've been doing, the things we've learned from our own professors. Um, and I think, I think that's the frustrating part for us because 
we see the potential of what could change if we could be more open and be, you know, who we are and embrace that without fear of repercussions, like losing jobs and all of that. But at the same time, like not all Josh, who can just pick up a job, right. Or move, pick up your trombone and play someplace or yeah, go on tour. Um, <laughs> Hey, Josh, I drove by that place, the Las Cruces place. Today. Oh, yeah. The place is tight. Yeah. So what? anyway, like, sorry to, I kind of saw a squirrel and went that way. Um, but, man, I appreciate this talk, Tom, because I think I'm going to be a little more, I'm going to be a little, little less neutral. But right now I'm teaching a Chicano studies class, so I'm pretty bold in the stuff that I say. Um, but, you know, try and be more cognizant of the fact that I can call it out in ways that make people think. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you all coming on and just um, talking about us. I miss, I miss our conversations. I learned so much from all of you. And um, it's nice to talk to the three smartest people I know. I think the goal is to be a wrecking ball, but be a wrecking ball made of cotton. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. See, this is why I love Lindsay because <laughs> he just drops some shit on you at the end. You're like, damn. I think that's going to be the title of this episode, Wrecking Ball Made of Cotton. Yeah. <laughs> that's, there's a lot to that. There's a lot to that. <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, I've kept you all way longer than I promised I would. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate you all signing on tonight. Well, that's it for today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. And um, I really want to thank my guests, Josie, Lindsay, and Josh for taking their time to talk about this topic. I know I learned a lot in this conversation. I think one of the things that resonated for me the most is this concept of vulnerability. I think without being vulnerable, without being able to put yourself out there, without being able to take critical feedback. For example, Josie brought up something that was really interesting. One of the things that, you know, in the way that I was approaching this conversation of, I think it's imperative as an educator, you talk about your bias, you put it out there at the beginning. And she pointed out, I come from a very privileged perspective. And I, and I think she's right, 100%. Uh, my ability to come out and say that and do that, I, I have safety in that because of being a white man. I think there's a lot of safety in me being able to own that. There's less criticism. And as we know, it's been well documented that people of color have had a lot of negative, um, particularly in higher, higher education evaluations. Um, and, and, there, and so the perception of or the, the statement of bias at the beginning without having some of that discussion uh, could, play, could put some undue burden and undue stress. And so I completely agree with her viewpoint on that. Um, but at the same point, I think, it, it, as Lindsay kind of talked about in this episode, it's creating that shared vulnerability in a classroom. It's creating that space in which it is a dance, and, and it really is a wrecking ball of cotton. Um, and you, you kind of have to maneuver through that. And I think sometimes um, folks that are on the side of trying to provide educational opportunities to engage on issues of race and racism forget that. I know I do sometimes, and I kind of run forward with a full head of steam. Uh, and that's an important thing to remember. You know, In PK-12, I think it's even harder to set that dynamic up. But if we are not finding space to not be neutral, if we are not creating opportunities to 
have our students and ed- the wolves that are being educated become vulnerable along with us as part of that journey, I do feel like the systems and structures for perpetuating whiteness will continue. I do feel like those things will continue to stay in place. So I, I really hope that there's some interesting takeaways. If you want to talk about the episode, uh, you can reach out to me on whitenessinamerica.com um, or you can reach out via email uh, at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. Again, the website is whitenessinamerica.com and the email address is whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. If you have ideas for other topics you'd like us to talk about or if you yourself want to be a panelist, hit me up on, on email. You can find me on Twitter Disrupt Whiteness. You can hit me up on Twitter at Disrupt Whiteness, um, and that's one S at the end of whiteness. Um, that's Disrupt Whiteness. Uh, I look forward to your feedback. I uh, hope you continue to listen. We'll see you next time.